Welcome everybody to the All Day ABA podcast. My name is Kayla and I'm your host. Um, just a reminder that this is season one, episode six, and the show notes for this podcast can be found on alldayaba.org. And we have a very special guest today, Brian Middleton from Bearded Behaviorist. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really honored to be on. Thank you. Uh, I loved the podcast that we did a while back on Old Behave, and, and I'm hoping for part two eventually, but yeah. uh, so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. And Brian has his own podcast called Oh Behave, which I have been on, which is pretty cool. So we're, you know, swapping around and he's here on my podcast, which is super fun. So is it okay, if I quickly plug that podcast, oh, please do. We were, yeah, uh, it, the, the title of it was Cults and Contingencies. We, we talked about uh, cults and cult behavior, and we discussed the bite model, which is a social psychology model, but we also discussed like the behavior analytics stuff that went on uh, or goes on in cults in relation to like the principles of behavior that occur. So it's a good yeah. learning episode for people who are not, not so um, like hip on like positive and negative reinforcement and punishment. I feel like we cleared that up pretty good. Oh, heck yeah. We did. So. We did an awesome job. Anyway, sorry. No, you're good. Thank you. Thank you for plugging that. So uh, speaking of ABA, how did you get into the field of ABA? Okay, well, um, I, I got into the field of ABA because I was a special ed teacher. Um, I would, uh, so I worked total of about seven years as a special ed teacher. Of those seven years, five was as a middle school behavior special ed teacher. Um, I worked with the mild, moderate, um, kids who had behavior problems, big air quotes there for, for those who, well, I, I didn't actually do air quotes, but you know, uh, whatever, <laughs> like be, behavior problems. And um, like the magic that I worked, and I say magic because that's what people said it was um, when I was working with those kids is I, I don't, I know this is kind of a shocker. I treated them like humans <laughs> and a lot of things very positive things happened as a result of that. But um, I was still working with some really hard cases and, uh, and trying to support some kids who had some really challenging um, target behaviors. And so, and, and the, the vast majority of the kids that had those behaviors were on spectrum, not all of them, but you know, it, it, I also had some um, bipolar and ADHD and some other, other fun ones there. Um, but uh, because autism conferences tended to have the most options, I signed up for ones in the region, and I went to one that was in the high school that actually was held for Southern Utah across the street from the middle school I taught at. Um, and I went there and I listened to the keynote speaker. And everything that she was saying, she was from Arizona State University. I can't remember her name. I'm, I feel awful about that. One day, shout I'll, out to her if she's listening. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening, like, thank you, thank you very much. You're amazing uh, for getting me where I am now by by pointing me in this direction. But like after the keynote, um, she came down, and you know, people were talking to her, and I waited my turn, and I started talking to her, and it, the. I literally skipped every other class that was held that I had signed up for and just spoke to her for the rest of the conference. And it was a day long conference. So it wasn't like a massive thing, but like 
at the end of this conversation where I'm learning all this amazing stuff she uh, from her and I'm just like, this is so cool. I'm looking, I'm writing down resources. Um, she goes, have you thought about becoming a BCBA? And I said, uh, a BCB what? And she said, a BCBA. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I'm NGWA. That stands for not good with acronyms. Could you tell me what that stands for? I'm not kidding. I like NGWA is something I've been using for years because special ed and military and apparently behavior analysis, uh, we're, we're, we're acronym central. Um, and so like uh, that, that's, that was an ongoing joke. So I had it right there off the cuff and, and she laughed and she told me about board certified behavior analysts and I started exploring into it. And, um, you know, I, I had gotten my autism diagnosis as an adult, um, and so like, you know, did a little research into it. And when I was researching into it, I saw some of the controversy relating to autism and ABA and, and, and this sort of stuff. And so I went in with my eyes kind of open. Um, the reason I say kind of open is some of the controversy, there was some, um, there was some assumptions on my part and there was some lack of information then, uh, especially in relating to Judge Rotenberg Center. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh. Um, and, and so like when I was looking it up and I was looking up information on it, um, no bueno, <laughs> no, no bueno, but the, the JRC has done a fantastic job of, of misrepresenting and, and, and using basically, um, obscure or confusing language to, to make it sound like it's something it's not. And so when I thought, what, what I thought the JRC was using was electroconvulsive therapy, formerly known as electroshock therapy, which um, has its own controversy and there's still issues relating to it, but it's less in some respects of an issue because uh, ECT is used to treat uh, medication resistant depression. And so that's what I thought they were using because there was a lot of confusion in relation to that. Um, well, and people that undergo ECT, at least nowadays, I'm sure it was different in the past, like all the horror stories that we've heard of, you know, psych mm -hmm. wards from the past, but people who undergo it nowadays are generally, from what I understand, under anesthesia. And are under anesthesia. And in most cases, it is consensual. The person has consented. I say most cases, because there are some cases where um, courts uh, or judges have, have ordered and those sorts of things. So there's still some controversy surrounding it. I'm not saying it's a cut and dry thing. Um, whenever we're dealing with uh, a situation where a person's rights are being taken from them through the illegal means, there's always there should always be a lot of, of scrutiny. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely under gener general anesthesia with medical professionals present to monitor and ensure. Um, and typically it's consensual on the part of the individual receiving the treatment. And so because of all those factors and the lack of information and, and the um, lovely effort by um, JRC and their legal team to make it confusing, uh, I thought that it was like people were freaking out about something that they really shouldn't have been freaking out about. Probably It was probably for the good that that confusion happened for, um, on my part, even though that's not that great when it comes to the people who've been suffering under what is basically the equivalent of torture. Um, but either way, like I, I read up on this stuff and I read up, up on other things and was like, okay, well, maybe this is not as bad as some people are making it out to be. 
Um, and so I, I pursued learning a little bit more and came to the conclusion that um, I would sign up to get my postmaster certificate because I have a, a master's of, of education with administrative endorsement. Um, I was wrapping up my master's degree when I found out about um, BCBAs and behavior analysis. And, and I had some exposure to ABA training as a special ed teacher, but it, it was not very precise. And it, there, there were a few, a few things that, that were incorrectly taught. And I had to relearn uh, yeah. correct terminology and relearn the way things are done, like um, especially functions of behavior and, and those sorts of things. Um, but either way, um, that was the beginning of a beginning. And uh, I went out and I got my, uh, I, I looked at a couple different degree paths and I went with uh, University of Cincinnati uh, and did their postmaster certificate program, and it, which is a year long. And um, it was really fantastic. Uh, the, the learning component was fantastic. There were some, a lot of things that I was able to learn. And I had some pretty fun supervisors through that time as a special ed teacher. Um, because I was able to take the behavior analytics stuff that I was being taught and I was able to directly apply it. So um, a lot of people are like, well, especially behavior analysts and training, uh, it, it's kind of difficult to get those unrestricted hours. Yeah. Because, sure. because you're, you're typically they're working as an RBT and they have a lot of direct hours and a lot of direct yeah. hours and, and that sort of stuff. But like, I, I was getting tons of unrestricted because I was writing behavior intervention plans. I was meeting with my supervisor and going through the behavior intervention plans and, and working in them in a direct application. And then, um, my supervisor would would train me on a technique and then would observe me training my staff on application. Um, and it was a lot of NET, not as much DTT, um, a lot of um, uh, functional behavior assessments, um, a, a lot of a lot of observation and data collection. Like it was just fantastic. So it's kind um, of almost like a, almost like, I, I know we have like a practicum option in ABA, but this is more like a, like a practicum practicum, like how I mean, you would typically it, think of one. It was me being tossed into the deep end with piranha and sharks, except that um, because I was already doing this job and I was already used to fending off all the sea creatures that were coming at me, um, it was less of a flailing and trying to survive and more of a, oh, hey, there's this cool submarine I can hop into. And now it's me not surviving. It's, it's me actually thriving. And it was really cool because uh, like those things that weren't clicking, like were starting to click, which just led to the, the humanness and the ability to see the kids for who they are and to respect their autonomy and, and be an advocate for them or uh, an, an ambassador and, and, and help other teachers to make those connections and, and see the kids for who they are instead of seeing them as their label. Uh, it, it was just, it was amazing. And if I, if, if, 
things had turned out differently and if the school district had not been doing the things that the school district was doing, I, I would probably still be there right now and be working as a BCBA for the school district. But um, that's that's a whole nother story. Long and short of it is uh, I was being worked to death. Um, I was, I was putting in 60 to 70 hour weeks. In some cases there were even 80 hour weeks just to keep up with the IEPs and paperwork because my attitude was I'm here for the kids and I will try to use my time that's given to me to work on paperwork, to work on the paperwork during the day. But the kids are, the kids will always be first. Right. I will, I will never put them secondary to a piece of a stupid piece of paperwork because the paperwork is supposed to be the record of the work that I'm doing, not the other way around. Right. Well, and it's, there's just so much administrative nonsense that happens no matter what field you're in, but especially in education and, you know, teachers are yanking their hair out and especially spe special education teachers, because those IEPs come at least once a year. And then and we have to give our updates and then we're trying to figure out how to work with the kids in the classroom and we're collaborating with other teachers and we're trying to make sure the teachers are following the goals. And, and uh, here's the thing, I will say this about the teachers in the school I was in. Um, they were fantastic, they really tried hard and they did a really good job. Um, my concern was, especially the last two years of being a special ed teacher, um, my special ed aides that were specifically funded by federal funds were being pulled to substitute classes. That's not cool. Which is illegal. Yeah. It's against the law. And I pushed back against that. And that's part of my problem is I'm not the sort to sit down and shut up. <laughs> um, I'm the sort to, or as my business partner likes to say, you have a, you have a contractor's mentality. <laughs> <laughs> not an employee mentality. Um, but, but no, I would, I would push back and I would say, no, this is what they're there for. And I'd still be told that I had, you know, I just had to make do. Um, and the reason I left education was after, after bearing my soul to the principal and the assistant principal and, and literally having a breakdown, like, uh, I had been diagnosed with clinical depression, uh, years before I became a teacher and, did some lifestyle changes to help address it, um, was able to, to deal with it through non-medication -medica means. And for um, the first time in, in six or seven years, it came back and I was, I was starting to have the ideation and all the other challenges that were going with that. And so, you know, I talked to my doctor and, and I, made sure that I was doing everything I was supposed to. And I went to the principal and assistant principal. And I said, look, I'm literally working myself to death here. Something's got to give. Can, is there anything that you can do to help me with this? Because I'm trying to handle the load and I'm trying to be a good team player. And I'm trying to do all the things that we're supposed to do. And, and there's just, it, it's, it's not, it's not easing up. And a week and a half later, um, a very good friend of mine, came to me and said, Hey, Brian, I just wanted to tell you this because I know that you're, you're having a rough time. And, and because I'm retiring, I don't have to worry about any backlash regards to this, but, um, Rob and Gavin are, are adding another class to your caseload next year. Oh my gosh. 
And, and this is a, a week and a half after I'm breaking down and like sobbing and asking for help. And it was at that point where I said, I gotta be done. F word this I'm, I'm done. I, I will get paid just as much as an RBT and perhaps even better than what I'm getting paid here. I don't need to work myself to death. I need to be in a place where I I'm not going to have the thought pop into my head. I wonder what happens if I just don't hit the brakes. Um, and, and so uh, that I found out about that just before spring break. So Heather and I uh, were like, hey, let's look at some cities we're thinking about going to because we want to leave southern, southern Utah anyways. Uh, we, we went out to Denver and Colorado Springs. I interviewed for multiple jobs, got a job offer um, over spring break. And when I came, once I made the decision of where I wanted to go, I peaced uh, out. I, I, I put in my letter, letter of resi resignation saying that at the end of this school year, I'm done. Um, Good for you for and, like not letting the job end you. I mean, there are people that that happens and burnout is real and recognizing it is, can be really, really difficult, but actually doing something about it can be even harder. Well, and the interesting thing is, is that when it comes to burnout culture, um, which this is an issue inside of all services, but uh, human services, but especially education. And I know it's an issue in behavior analysis too. Um, burnout culture follows a lot of the characteristics of cults. The, the bite model is still present. The control of behavior, information, time, emotions. Um, and, and, and basically, you're not allowed to feel the way you're feeling and your superiors, uh, you, you do what you're told or else. Um, lots of punishment contingencies, lots of, um, of, of overwhelming positive reinforcement for small little things followed by very quick and, and powerful punishers. Um, all sorts of fun things. And, and by fun things, I mean not fun things going on there. Um, but I was able to break myself out of that and, and move to a place where it was better. And, and I'm really glad I did. I, I, I'm also glad I did the education thing and I love special education. I really wish that the culture was different and I'd like to be instrumental in helping change that culture. Um, and a big part of it is making sure teachers have the training that they need. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you a really good example of this because this was one of my favorite breakthroughs. So um, for those that aren't aware of it, child find is required by IDEA um, in, in um, the US, uh, Individuals with Disabilities uh, in Education Act, I believe is what it stands for. So there's IDEA 1999 and 2004. Uh, the 2004 reauthorized the, the previous act and updated it and improved it. Um, and child find is the requirement for schools to try to identify and support kids with special needs. So it can't be something that's passively done. It has to be an active exploration um, and multi-tiered systems of supports, MTSS, uh, all that fun stuff. Uh, I know the stuff like the back of my hand because on top of being a special ed teacher, I have administrative endorsements. So I know all about this good stuff from both perspectives. Um, and so, you know, I was going through and doing child find and, and doing those multi-tiered systems of support because I was, in addition to being the behavior special ed teacher, I was a part of the um, um, TAT team, the, the teacher action team. Um, 
by the way, uh, one of my favorite little jokes is I think that there needs to be a teacher information um, uh, team so, <laughs> so that you can do a tit for tat. Just saying, like, I, I, I think that the teacher information team should send referrals to the tat team. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. I, I can't help it. It's, it's the, the dad jokes are my favorite. Anyway, so, um, but yeah, so the, the, I was part of the TAT team, part of the identification process and, and, and that, which was a real joy. And for one of these kids I was working with who um, we were able, I was able to work with a teacher and helping support. And he turns out he didn't need special ed services. He just needed a little bit of help. Um, and, and one of those little bit of helps was uh, food, access to food, because there was a problem with that. And, and there was also some, and they need to be some understanding from some teachers. Uh, and, and when talking about this particular kid, I was talking to this teacher and this was the kid's least favorite class. He hated it. And he would, I was trusted. He would come to me and complain about it. And so, you know, I, I, I talked with the teacher and the teacher would complain to me about the kid. And, um, the, the day that I was having a conversation at the end of the day with this teacher and, and was trying to help him to see that perhaps a change in approach would help. Um, I said, here's a really cool concept that I've learned from my, my post-master's classes. And this concept is that um, all behavior, specifically, now I, I'm more specific, behavior as in um, reflexive and operant, but all behavior reflexive and operant is right for the individual based off of their learning history and their current environment. I like that. And, and the teacher, the teacher's like, wait, hold on a second, say that again. And I said, all behavior is right for the individual for their learning history and their environment. And I've been helping this teacher see this kid through new eyes. And I saw the click happen. He's like, oh, oh. And from the next day moving forward, everything changed. That's awesome. everything for that kid changed and, and everything for that teacher changed. And that teacher went from that kid's least favorite teacher to his favorite teacher. Oh, he, he, it went from Mr. So, you know, to something really cool happened in, cl in class today, Mr. Middleton. And look at this paper I did really good on and all this other stuff. And it was because of that, that simple concept. So when, when I was hearing, you know, people talking about behavior analysis as, as being harmful, I was not seeing it because I was seeing the beautiful, wonderful side of what behavior analysis can do. Um, the human side, the side that is the nerdiest, most wonderful way of being compassionate ever. Well, and, and, and understanding I, I, and kind and wonderful. Yeah, sorry. Go and ahead. No, you're fine. To, to be fair to any autistic people that might be listening, a lot of people would even say that that side of ABA isn't even ABA. So... Yeah, I, I can mean, have all sorts of fun conversations about that. I know that that's a whole other tangent. I just wanted to throw that in there for anybody listening, being like, there's no beautiful side of ABA. I, I hear you. I, I hear I, you. Yeah, so we, we can come back to that. But 
I'm sure there's another question you have for me because oh for sure and I feel I feel like we've kind of like wrapped a whole lot of things into it so let, let's just kind of bing bang boom yeah how did bearded behaviorist start when did you find out you were autistic and what was that experience like and then how does being autistic impact your work as a behavior analyst just okay. I, I feel like we've like covered a lot of that but without saying it already uh, uh, so I'll kind of bump back a little bit um so to this, this, the third question, um, when did I find out I was autistic and what was that experience like? Um, so I was actually one of the early receivers of IEPs. Um, uh, I, I received my first IEP, I think at the age of 13 or 14, um, because IDEA 1999 was the authorization of the initial IEPs. Um, and so when I went in and got identified and had all the testing done, um, I was identified as dysgraphic and uh, later received the diagnosis of nonverbal learning disorder, which it turns out um, is one of the more common misdiagnoses for, Makes sense. for Asperger's syndrome, uh, which has since been rolled in with the DSM-5 into autism spectrum disorder. So, um, and it turns out the reason that it's been rolled in is because the difference between Asperger's syndrome and ASD with regards, or autism with regards to diagnosis had more to do with uh, income level and zip code than yep. it did to the supposed function levels that, that they were, that they claimed to have. So long story short, um, that that was the diagnosis I received, and I and I had a very early IEP. And something that was very formative to my early years was the fact that um, the special ed teacher that did the testing uh, for me um, said to my mom, "If Brian flips oil, sorry, flips burger or changes oil for a living, he'll be lucky." which pissed my mom off right proper. Rightfully, yeah. Like my, my, my parents, they, they, you know, they made plenty of mistakes as anybody does, but I will say that they, they did a wonderful job advocating for me and my siblings. And I, and I love them for that. Um, and, and so my mom was like, you're not, you're not getting anywhere near my kid. Uh, and, and I was homeschooled and, and got a lot of support and, and, and went through a charter school, which at the time charter schools were a little bit different, especially in Northern California, where I was living. Did you um, have an IEP through the charter yeah. school? Okay. Yeah, I, That's, I know like I, it's not required at like non-public schools, right? Um, if they're receiving government funds, they have to do an IEP. Okay. And the charter system in California at the time, I don't know what it is now, but it, it, they were government funds being allocated. So the answer was yes, I had an IEP. Um, so yeah, uh, and special ed teachers, specifically the charter school special ed teacher who would drive quite a distance to come out because it was, for, home, for me, charter school was kind of a combination of homeschool and then the charter school would give funds to my parents to find teachers and hire them to teach us. Um, and then eventually there was a charter center started close by so that there could be more of that. But um, it was it was closer to like a really cool homeschool private school combo thing. Um, like my my geometry and algebra teacher, he worked on the Bay Bridge in San oh, Francisco. That's cool. That's and my, cool. my chemistry teacher, um, worked at the Sacramento Water Lab. And I, I, I don't know if he's retired yet or not. He I think he is, but at one point he was the head of the Sacramento Water Lab. So like 
he has a little spectrometer in his uh, in his garage, and we got to actually do chemistry, like like cool chemistry, and I've all sorts of fun stuff there. But um, and that that was kind of the perfect environment. And there was a I, I know that I have a lot of privilege because not everybody had that those opportunities. But then you know because I had the good memories of amazing teachers and especially a good special ed teacher who supported. Um, I'll be in a kind of a weird non-traditional environment. Uh, when I went for schooling and decided I didn't want to continue with pre-law and I wanted to pursue education, when my counselor said, hey, if you add two semesters, you can get a special ed dual certification. You can get a dual bachelor's. And I was like, ah, sure, why not? Why not? Yeah, you know, I'll be a social science composite. So basically I could, I am, I was, my license has lapsed since, but I was licensed to teach history, sociology, political science, geography, economics, and psychology at, up to the high school level, um, and special ed. So <laughs> that's pretty K cool. 12. It is pretty cool. It's a lot of fun. Um, and so I'm like, hey, why not? This is fun. The, the, this is my special interest, uh, in things I'm interested in. And I wasn't able to get a job for longer than one semester at a time as a, as a, a history or social sciences teacher, but I, from day one, um, of graduation, even before I received my official diploma, um, I was able to be a special ed teacher. And here's the thing, when I was working with the special ed kids, especially the autistic kids, I was just like, oh my God, this is my childhood. I'm home. <laughs> like, I understand exactly what this kid's going through. Like, granted, his interests are not exactly mine, but like, I get it. Oh man, this is like, and, and that helped a lot with, with working with the kids because like, I got it. Um, I got what was going on. And so um, because I was a part of the child find process and I, and my very good friend um, who is a, was a school psychologist at the time I talked to him and he's like, yeah, yeah, you're probably autistic. And I was like, okay, so what am I supposed to do? And, and he said, well, there's some questionnaires, but they're kind of expensive. And then um, like a month and a half later, he shows up and says, so um, the school district throws these out because we don't have any adult students because the, the, these questionnaires come in a pack. So here, here's a couple. <laughs> and, and so I fill them out and, and, and he helped me out with scoring them. And yes, <laughs> just, yeah. just yes. Uh, combine that with my IEP and, and all the other things and I basically gathered all the information together and walked into my set of doctor's appointment, walked into the doctor's office and said, hey, doc, I think I'm autistic. And then I proceeds to overwhelm the poor doctor with all the information that I've done and show him. And I'm like, okay, doc, so what am I supposed to do so I can get an official diagnosis? And he looks at me, he looks down and he says, yes. <laughs> he's like, I'll just mark it in your chart and we'll be done. <laughs> he's, he's like, you're good. And like, he, I, I gave my, you know, I gave contact information for my friend who is also a, a counseling psychologist and is able to so, so that way you could verify blah, blah, blah. But long story short, I got the diagnosis at the tender age of, I think, 25 or six. Um, and, and it's like, okay, cool. My life is starting to make more sense. Um, and then of course, my journey into understanding neurodiversity, the love the book Neurotribes, love the research that I've been doing, the, the reading, um, some great resources out there, especially neuroclastic. 
um, and some some fantastic work that Tara Vance has been doing with with that. Hey Tara, <laughs> I don't know if Tara's listening, but hey Tara, hey, if you're listening. Hey Tara, you you the bomb, and you're a good friend. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was the start of that component, and then going into the behavior analysis when my post master's certificate. Um, the start of bearded behaviorists to go back to the question before that um, consisted of uh, I was taking a, a class and one of the classes and the professor gave us an extra credit assignment to review the um, the class and offer feed analytic feedback on how the class could be improved. That's pretty, which, pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I was like, hey, this is pretty awesome. So I took the assignment very seriously and I broke it down. And since I had quite a bit of education under my belt and a lot of ex exemplars to refer to um, and referred back to some of my favorite classes, especially my master's level classes um, and how they were structured, I went through and I broke it down and I said, okay, so these are some really cool things that the class is doing. And these are some things that could be improved. And here's some examples of how to do it. And, and like, I took the assignment extremely seriously, put a lot more work into it, to it than was really required to be able to get it. But I was like, hey, my professor's given me a cool opportunity and I want to be able to give something back. And, and then I posted it to the forum post for the class because it was through, I think Canvas or whatever. And we we're supposed to post it to the forum post. Um, post it, go to bed, next morning look at my school email and see an email from that professor it was very long and it was very punishing the professor basically ragged on me telling me that i was using problem-oriented thinking and that if i kept the attitude that i had that i would not go very far in behavior analysis and, and the funny part about it is the summary of it, the simplified summary of the feedback i gave was these things right here are really cool for teaching behavior analysis, but could we use more behavior analysis to teach behavior analysis? Like that'd be kind of cool. And I, and I presented solutions, I presented options and, you know, I, I get it. Sometimes when you get feedback, especially if someone dives in a little bit, you know, autistic -y and goes, goes a little overboard, you might, you might feel a little bit attacked, but you know, come on, you don't, you don't have to punish a poor little you know, well, you were coming from a good place and you were like, doing the assignment I, to I the did what I was degree. Told. Yeah. And, and so this was like mid October of 2018, uh, when I got this and, um, the number of emails that I typed up and then deleted, uh, and I just never, eventually I just never sent it. Um, but as punishment will do, um, it, I had emotional response and that emotional response was Brian pissed. <laughs> and, and I said, screw this guy, I'm going to prove him wrong. And so December 8th, 2018, it's literally seared in my brain, was the birth of bearded behaviors. I started this silly little Facebook page where I started teaching behavior analysis through memes. I did not know. I thought you started bearded behaviorist way before I started all day ABA. So I am shooketh that <laughs> you started like six months after I did. I think I was like May. I don't know the exact date, but I remember May 2018 is when I opened my Etsy shop. 
it has evolved drastically since then. But that cracks me up that you started it after. That's so funny. Because I'm younger than you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in the business world, I suppose. But that's that's so interesting. I had no idea that that's how it started. That's so so cool. Yeah, I mean, so that, it's unfortunate how it started, but like, well, you know, it, it is what it is. And in some ways I'm grateful to that teacher because I wouldn't be where I am now if it weren't for him being a <clears throat> asshole. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, it's like, uh, if you're, if you know who you are and you're listening to this, well, thanks for being an asshole, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but either way, like the, this has resulted in some really amazing things and, and has resulted in some pretty positive changes and, I will say right now that like, I definitely am not making a lot of money off of this. Like I'm, this year was the first year I actually started getting like some money for it. But if we were to look at like hourly wage, like we're talking maybe 50 cents an hour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, have not kept close track, but, uh, I was, I was probably losing money for quite a while and yeah. especially the time investment for all day ABA at upfront was just horrendously extensive and yeah but the, but there's a love for it and right. that's the that's the thing that about this is like i love what i do it is it, it's not a job like that that old adage like find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life well i think that's slightly bs because like you still there's still things that are hard that you have to do so there is work involved but like I've learned the value in doing hard things and doing hard things results in, in amazing growth and um, I love what I do and I, I will continue to do it and I'm never going to retire. Like I might, I might stop working a particular job or position, but I'm never going to retire because the day that I retire will be the day that I start rotting. Um, right. because this is fun. This isn't, it, it's interesting. It's engaging. It's enjoyable. And I love looking at the world through the lens of behavior analysis, more specifically the analytic lens. And I love looking at through the, the functional contextualist lens, which turns out I'm probably a functional contextualist more than I am anything else. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, so I'm grateful for that. And, and I con will continue to, to dive in and, and do cool things. And I also, one of my other passions is helping elevate other voices. Um, because, I was about like, to say, like, I think you and I have a good position where we can do some advocacy that we might not be able to do otherwise. And that is a privilege. And that's something that I don't think you or I take for granted. Well, and like the interesting thing about being autistic is like, I am in some ways the stereotypical uh, Asperger's or Aspie autistic, right? And, and so in many respects, because of that, I have a lot of advantages and I'm definitely highly vocal. And I will tell you right now that that is, I am definitely a product of my environment. I'm one of seven kids and we are all type A personalities. And if you did not speak up for yourself and you did not advocate for yourself, then <laughs> things were not, yeah. So like, like I'm definitely a product of my environment with all the privilege that, that, that has been occurred in my life. And I'm really grateful for that. And at the same time, I, I feel like if I, if I did not utilize what I had towards trying to change the outcomes, um, and, and I also have kind of a fun little, I like tweaking things. I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bit of a troll. 
and, and, I, and I fully acknowledge it. A tweaker. That's that's like a, a drug reference, right? Nope. <laughs> no, 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 no. Tweak isn't uh, as in change. <laughs> well, I was going to say you're a tweaker, but then I was like, I don't think that's a good thing. Never mind. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, like, but I, I like I like messing with things and I like and I like pushing buttons sometimes. Uh, definitely attention maintained there a little bit. Uh, you know, like I, I like to say that my it, my if I were a meme, I'd probably be troll face. <laughs> you know, because I like pushing buttons. And one of the buttons I like to push is, is questioning assumptions and challenging norms. Um, and, and I really, I, I think it's fantastic to do that because by doing that, it drives science forward. And you know what? Some of the assumptions that I've, uh, the, that I've questioned in the past, like they, they didn't need to be questioned. But at the same time, I'm like, well, they kind of did. <laughs> because because if you don't question them, then there where's the philosophical doubt, right? right. Um, and and there's definitely been some many ideas I've had in the the past that were definitely way off base and wrong. And I look forward to the day that somebody finds something that I said in the past and been like, look at this thing that you said that's not right. And I'll be like, yeah, I grew. Right. <laughs> right. I, I I my opinions change because I learn new things. Um, and, and so that's, that's the whole process. This is what behavior analysis is about. This is, this is what understanding how we learn and grow and, and progress is. Um, and so, yes, I've had some faulty assumptions and I've, I've asked wrong questions in the past and I'll continue to probably ask some bad questions or make some bad assumptions, but I'm open to feedback and I'm, and I'm interested in hearing if I did something in a way that was not the best and could have been improved, right? I don't want to say wrong because that's that's kind of a narrow perspective. Although I definitely have done things wrong, I've I've, right. made, I've made my fair share of mistakes. But that's the attitude we need to have as behavior analysts, especially because the vast majority of behavior analysis serves autism, autistics, neurodivergent populations, and so my begging and pleading to behavior analysts out there, whether you're a newbie or you've been in the field for years and years and years, I don't, I don't give a flip either way where, where, you're, where your role is. I'm begging you, please come in with the attitude of philosophical doubt. Come in with the attitude of being humble, of having that professional humility and being willing to take feedback. Because you know what? I, I've been there when when I've received feedback in the past, or especially when I've had somebody come at me and, and believe you me, it, this has happened very recently, people attacking me and telling me that I'm a traitor, that uh, I, I sound like somebody who's been through conversion therapy. I've, I've, I've received more bullying from people who are very angry and upset within the autism community than I've ever received from any neurotypical or, or uh, neurological mean person. And here's the thing. I understand where the emotion is coming from. And so I acknowledge the defensiveness that I feel. Use a little acceptance commitment therapy here, right? <laughs> a little verbal behavior. I tact the emotion I'm feeling. And then I look at that person in their context. I look at myself in context and I identify my values and I move forward. And, and that's what behavior analysis needs to do as a field, as a right. whole. We need to we need to be stepping up and being like, oh, hey, I might have done something wrong there. Okay, I can improve. And so my approach when somebody 
gets up in, in my grill, be it online or in person, is instead of being like, well, not all ABA, or, well, you must have experienced bad ABA, which, you know, okay, yeah, that, sure. But instead of saying that, you know what I say is, I am so sorry. Right. I'm sorry that you or someone you love was hurt. That's awful. And you know what? My ethics code requires that I be responsible for that. My ethics code requires that I take accountability. Now, like, no, I'm not the one who did it. So like, obviously I'm not going to be getting an ethics report report or, or my, my license withdrawn or, 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 you know, if there, if there needs to be criminal charges, criminal charges for what was done. But at the same time, I'm responsible because I've agreed to this. This is where my, my privilege and power comes from. We're part of the system. Yeah. Is like, I, I need to be a part of this. A dissemination is a part of it, but you know what? Also appropriate training and, and improving the field and the science. And so like, that's, that's what informs the advocacy that I do, not only advocacy for the autism community, because I am an autistic advocate, not a self-advocate. Here's this, I, I wanna point something out. When you talk about somebody who, who is a person of color advocating for civil rights, you don't call them a, a self-advocate. And when, you, when you're talking about uh, uh, someone who's a part of the LGBTQI community or, or a woman advocating for themselves, you don't say they're you know, a self-advocate, a feminist self-advocate. No, it's, they're an advocate. Right, so, you're, so not advocate, you're advocating for more than just yourself. Yeah, I'm advocating for change. And so I don't need to be a self-advocate. I like us to try to remove that from our lexicon and just call them advocates, right? That's what we are. Um, and, and, and so I advocate not only for autism and neurodiversity and that approach, but I also advocate for behavior analysis being what it should be, what it can be. The, the, the beautiful, powerful thing that I've been able to see over and over and over happen again and again and again. And I'll give you a good example of this. I haven't shared this on, on social media yet, but this, this, is a conver- this is a quote from a parent uh, from a conversation that I had a few weeks back. Um, let me see if I can find it because I have it written down. Um, but I hate it when I go through and try to find something that's just like, it's not right there. Where is it? You're totally fine. You're totally (laughs) fine. Here we go. Okay. So this is what a parent said to me. Uh, You were the first professional to show me that my child is amazing and perfect just the way they are. And when I started seeing that everything changed. That makes me happy. And, and like, I, I almost fell apart right then and there when she said that. And like, that's our job. What an amazing privilege to be in that position where we can change the way somebody sees another person and to see the compassion and the power that we can have to help. And so, like, Yes, the things that me and, and my, my peers, the, those of us who are pushing for this positive change, for this improvement of our field, especially this, us neurodivergent behavior analysts who are pushing for it. Yes, you can look at it as, oh, come on, you're asking me to do more. This is already a hard job. Or you can look at it as, 
oh my gosh, I have such an amazing privilege. This is a dream come true for behavior analysts. We have the ability to shape culture and to change the environment on a cultural level. That's the attitude that we need to have. We need to have the attitude of, this is an amazing opportunity to change the way that we do things as, an, as a culture around the world, because we have a perspective, an evidence-based perspective of, hey, look at all this cool research that we've done. Now we need to ask better questions. We need to do even better research. Okay, so some of the research we've done in the past wasn't asking the right questions, and it was definitely grounded in ableism, looking at you, Lolas. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, and we can change the way that the world perceives people with disability. And we can address the things that are actually culturally oriented, that are actually not disability, but just culture. And we can change a world, to make a world a neurodivergent affirming world, a neurodiversity affirming world. Because here's the thing, I'll tell you this right now. The classroom that I had, one, Here's, here's one of my favorite flexes about my classroom that I had when I was a special ed teacher, 100% inclusion. 100% push into classroom and my kids were thriving. And I say my kids because they are mine. I was daddy bear. I, I, I love every single one of them. And, and when, if they ever reach out to me, like, yes, they're, they're still my kids. I love them. Um, so that, that's, that's flex number one, but here's flex number two. I had kids asking to hang out with me during lunchtime. Aww. And I'm not just talking the, the kids who identify with special needs. I'm talking about the neurotypical gen ed kids wanting to come in and hang out in my classroom and hang out with the other kids, not because they felt bad for somebody, not because they wanted uh, X, Y, and Z, although I will say that the, uh, the, the candy machine in my classroom was definitely highly preferred. <laughs> it might've been a little bit of a flex. The, I, I, so that was one of my favorites is, is I, so I, I found at a garage sale, a candy machine that had a, a, a missing key and I took it to a locksmith and got a full, full replacement lock. And, and, and I eventually had three candy dispensers and I would, I would use a, a token economy based off of being caught doing good and, and, and self-management. Um, and then kids could redeem it for a variety of things from activities to, to items. And the item, one of the items that they could redeem was tokens that they could put into the candy machine to get candy out. And, um, you know, I just, it's just kind of fun. And there's all sorts of reinforcement contingencies involved with the candy machine itself from, I got a coin to I slot the coin in to I hear the click, 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 click. And I hear the cling, 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 cling. And I pull the candy out. And of course, this is an opportunity for sharing. Uh, and so I would incentivize uh, kids for sharing to the point that I was starting to see kids sharing even without me catching them. Um, so lots of social skills building there, right? Well, turns out there's a crowd of kids who started sneaking into my classroom, putting quarters in my candy machine. <laughs> that's funny <laughs> to get candy and 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 so I was I started like actually making money off of it and I was like this is not what I'm here for I'm not running a vending machine empire <laughs> so aside from using some of the money to refill the machine I actually worked with the um uh I worked with the the lunch ladies 
uh, and we created a little fund where the extra money would go into paying for the kids who were the gap kids, where they didn't qualify for the free or reduced lunch, but they were hungry. And so, so I, so, so in some ways, once that was, when, once I figured that out, I, was, I kind of was like, tell your friends that this extra money goes to help your friends. And, <laughs> and then that led to uh, something else pretty cool where we looked, worked with the local food bank and they would bring food in. And my classroom turned into um, just a, a community center. And I, it, it broke my heart when I heard that that changed when I left. So that's one of the things that I was really sad about. But um, like there were so many kids who knew that all they had to do was visit Mr. Middleton, no questions asked, he would say nothing. They asked if they could walk into the middle area and they could put some canned food into their backpack and leave for the weekend with food or they could grab food every single day if they wanted to. And I asked no questions. There was, it, it, and it, it, it was beautiful because it changed the entire culture of how the kids were interacting with each other and there was more compassion and love towards each other. Um, and and I, I, I truly believe that this is the heart of what behavior analysis can be, is it can be something that we're a part of the community. Um, I will tell you this right now, throw out the idea, throw out the meme, the whatever it is that, that people keep saying where behavior analysis will save the world, that's toxic, right. that's bull. And replace it, so replacement behavior, this is behavior analytic, replace it with behavior analysis can be a part of the solution. We're a part of a community. We need to work with other professionals. We need to work with teachers. We need to have allies in advocacy. We need to be partners with the autism community, with the mental health community. We need to be a part of the solution. We are not going to save the world. We're going to be a part of the world changing for the better. And, and that's what I love that we can do. This is the thing that I want to see more of. And, and every single time I do it, I see it happen. I, I, I just wanna, depending on the person, some people don't like, don't thrive on the attention, but I, I wanna throw that attention at people and be like, look at this, this is so cool. So, so speaking of solutions, before we go, this has just been such an incredible episode and I'm just, I feel inspired. So hopefully listeners feel inspired too. Um, because you kind of help bridge the gap between the autistic community and the ABA community, if there are, well, there's probably many neurodivergent people listening to this also. So what are like three things that someone in the field of behavior analysis could do to help improve the field and how could they do that? And then on the other side of the same coin, what are three things that you think the autistic community could do to help change the field of ABA for the better? And then how can we accomplish those changes? Okay, so first thing, and this is gonna be hard behavior analysts. I, it's gonna be really hard. It's hard for me sometimes. I make the mistake of, of, of doing more than just listening, but go out there to social media, go to conferences and listen. Even if you disagree with the person, even if the person clearly has no comprehension of what behavior analysis is, just listen. It's gonna be hard. You're gonna have a lot of emotions that you'll need to tact. <laughs> Label those emotions, folks. Uh, acknowledge that you're feeling them and then 
look at your values and identify what you need to do to be able to take committed action and 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 just focus on listening and then change your practice change how you train change how you look at the people around you change how you look at your learners um be careful with your language and if you catch yourself doing something fix it like it's it's that simple like and and language is important as it turns out the research backs it up behavior analytic research folks um the words we use do matter because the way we use our words determines how we engage with the environment and so if you see something or if you get a correction be open to that feedback and and try to shape your language and change the way you do things um i'll, I'll throw out an example for you uh this is this was really peculiar to me i didn't realize it so one of my good friends uh lewis day um who came on and and on one of my podcasts uh he is um pursuing a uh, degree in, in psychology and worked as an RBT. Um, Lewis uh, wrote a fantastic article on his website, The Life of Lou, about pairing and rapport and how pairing is not rapport, is not building rapport, and, and did a really good breakdown of it. And then as a result of that, Lou and I had some conversations and we and 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 I explored a little bit deeper. And as it turns out, rapport used to be a part of the behavior analytic lexicon. And now it's not. And for some reason it's it's dropped off. And pairing is a part of rapport building, but rapport building is not pairing. Like it's it, pairing is a part of it, but it is not it. And, and one of the feedbacks that the, the autistic community and other critics of behavior analysis is that we're, uh, we're, we're, we're um, what was the term? Oh God, why am I blanking? Gr grooming? Grooming, there we okay. go. We're, we're grooming kids. We're, 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 um, we're, we're love bombing them and grooming them. Now, I, I will say this, I, I disagree with how that's being used because the term grooming specifically refers to a sexual predator um, or, or a con man manipulating somebody. Um, so I disagree with that utilization. However, as much as it hurts to hear that, I do agree that there are some toxic ways that we're going about doing things. So rapport building includes establishing boundaries between every person involved and respecting those boundaries. And so I will say this, Greg Hanley's work, PFA, um, SBT, that, that work is a fantastic example of behavior analysis improving. Because as it turns out, if you listen to what Greg's talking about, and if you look at the work that, that he and his team has been doing, um, it's basically ascent-based behavior analysis. Now, th th there's ways of improving and some of my good friends have given some feedback to that team and and there's been some increased improvement as a result of it in recent where uh, Dr. Hanley and, and his team have been much more clear on, no, no, we really do mean uh, like ascent based here, like it, no, no, we're not going to be doing this stuff. Some people are adding their interpretation in from kind of the Lovasian approach. And it's like, nope, nope, we got to throw that out. We got to relearn here. Um, but like, that's a way that research is being done and 
evidence-based includes our practice. And there's a lot of people out there who are like, hey, I've been doing this for years and I've been wanting to say it, but I didn't know how to say it. Like I've had so many people come to me and say that. Um, like people have been in the field for 20, 30 years being like, yeah, this is what I've been doing. And I, I, I kind of didn't want to say anything because I was afraid I was going to get yelled at or treated poorly, which I'm like, just that is awful. awful. Right. Like, why is, why, why was it? No, that's just the culture of ABA, unfortunately. And we we need to change that culture. And so, yes, I've definitely been told I'm a traitor. And I know that some people in some places in behavior analysis, especially in ABA, I, my name might be considered a curse word. And I'm a little bit proud of that. (laughs) Like, I'm also really sad about it because really, I wish that it was not the case. I wish it was less about pride and it was more about, hey, okay, let's get some feedback. And I will be honest, there's been more than one time that I've let my emotions get the better and I've said some pretty mean things. Um, I wouldn't say the wor- they're the worst things in the world. I've, uh, I've definitely improved a lot since I've learned and applied ACT to myself, which is basically, I've, I started learning ACT right when I was learning about behavior analysis, thankfully. Um, so that's kind of cool too. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, that, so, so one, be open to listening to autistics and neurodivergence and their feedback, even if it hurts. Because our value is a value of being evidence-based and be socially significant, socially valid. And that's the social validity measure. We're seeing how our work is being reflected in the community. So we need to we need to be that and do that because Bear Wolf and Risley, when they revisited the seven dimensions 20 years later, they were like, uh yeah, we weren't, we aren't doing a very good job right. of this. And that's still true today. Um, so that's that's feedback number one. Feedback number two, uh explore functional contextualism because that is the next wave of behavior analysis. Um uh Relational frame theory is based off of verbal operants and verbal behavior. And as it turns out, that diving into that is going to really improve your understanding of verbal behavior um, and is really going to understand improve your understanding of how operants work to begin with. It's really cool. I'm like barely scratching the surface and I'm like, this is so cool. I'm nerding out over here. Um, and as a part of that process is dive into and explore ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy and or training. Um, and, and this is going to be a little bit hard because there are some behavior analysts out there who publish research saying ACT is not behavior analytic. And um, it is. <laughs> uh, like I, I have a, I straight up have an entire CEU that I've done and it's available on mindfulbehaviorllc.org um, where I break down ACT into behavior analytic language and I show you how it is self-management and verbal behavior and like when you do that, if, if you do decide to go to that and do that CEU, please know that you're not going to be an ACT specialist or expert after you're done with it. You're gonna, this is an introduction to looking at it from the behavior analytic perspective. But like seriously, dive, in, dive into RFT and dive into ACT because that's number two. That's going to help you see where the connections are and how behavior analysis can be more human. Um, and then the last thing that you can do and, and this is exciting and this is fun and it's also scary as all get out. I promise you're going to be a little bit worried about this. But the next time you hear that's, that, that thought pop up in your head, the, 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 that's mentalism, 
or that's that's circular right circular reasoning and all that circular reasoning all that all that good stuff next time that pops up question that because here's the thing about behavior analysis we're behavior analysts right we're scientists scientists are curious scientists explore so anytime that i hear somebody say that's mentalism is it well actually it is saying that's mentalism is a mentalism it's a stop think it acts as an autoclitic uh to use verbal behavior terminology um to stop your processing so you did engage in mentalism by saying that's mentalism and and maybe there is some mentalism there right like the function of the behavior can't be anxiety because anxiety is not a function right but what if you dive a little bit deeper and say, okay, anxiety is an emotion. Anxiety is a behavior. It's something that a living, only a living organism can do because a, a skeleton or a, a rock can't, can't, can't have anxiety. Okay. So there's, so there's some neurological and some chemical and some muscular things going on here. So, all right. So what is the function of the anxiety? They're doing it because they're anxious, but what's the function? Let's explore a little bit deeper. Let's look a little bit further into this and be able to start seeing, oh, emotions serve a function. They do something. So when there's criticism out there where like behavior analysts are, you know, well, it's not just functions of behavior and all this other stuff. It's like, here's my comparison I like to use. When you're building a house, you need to create a solid foundation, right? When you build any sort of building or structure. So when you build this, you lay the foundation and you're done, right? No. I, I dug the foundation. I laid it. Okay, look at this a beautiful apartment building I have here. You can live in it. Look, it's so great. And, and then the person next to you is looking at you like, what's wrong with you? It's just concrete in the ground. I've, like, I've heard it referred to as like the deep why, like what's what's the reason behind the reason and yeah. and i'll also because because i recently experienced psychosis like i mean we're required to rule out medical and oh, emotions can be completely medical things can be completely medical like i i i i ugh. People would be like, oh, well, yeah, I just, I hate how behavior analysis tries to like discount other shit. Like, well, and, 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 and you, you did something that our culture, behavior analytic culture does. And so I'm going to give you some feedback because, because I got this feedback and I learned, and so I'm improving. So guess what? Rule out medical has never been a thing. It's we account for medical. Our ethics code doesn't say rule out, it says account for. So to say rule out medical precision in, in words. So thank you for letting me give you feedback. Hey, oh, no, sorry. you're fine. Uh, yeah, okay. please do. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean, but at the same time, like when we say rule out medical, what we're doing is we're discounting. Right? Well, because um, medical never goes away either. I yeah. mean, like you're always in a biological state. You're always exactly. having medical things going on, whether they're healthy or unhealthy. Well, and it's like when I'm teaching functions of behavior, there's two core things that I cover. Um, the first one that I cover with my any any person I'm teaching, be they a parent, an RBT, another behavior analyst in training, anybody, heck, even my kids, I teach the kids functions of behavior. It's kind of fun. Uh, but when I'm when when I'm teaching it, I say, guess what? We have 
attention, access, avoidance, escape, and automatic. Also known as automatic sensory or sensory, but the reason I say automatic specifically or automatic it's a sensory better term for it is because everything's sensory, which means that we have to rule out the other three before we go to automatic, right? Because everything has an automatic component to it because it's all sensory. Like the functions are all about sensory. The other thing that I teach is at very early on, I, I talk about this. I'm like, okay, so. Now that you know about the four functions and you understand them and, and we've got some good examples and you know that the functions are neither good nor bad, they are, they just are the thing that's happening. Um, here's the next thing to understand. Uh, sometimes people ask the question, well, isn't control a function of behavior? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna probably, someone's gonna flip a lid here. So I gonna probably flip a table. Yes, control is a function because control of attention control of access, control of where you are in your environment, escape avoidance, and control of what feels good and what feels bad. All four functions are about control because an organism, organism, the organism, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an organism um, tries to achieve homeostasis. We try to control our environment. Every civil, single living organism tries to control their environment in some way, be it an, an amoeba, or a virus, like if you consider viruses living, they try to do, they try to exert some control. They want to be able to replicate, um, you know, trees, plants. One of my favorite uh, copies of um, uh, Java um, back when I was an ABI member and I got it in the mail uh, was the the behavior analytic journal that was focused on, on uh, plants and bacterium and fungi. And, and slime molds and all that cool stuff. Cause I was just like, this is so cool. It applies to everything that's alive. Um, and, and it turns out that there's some behavior analysts who are working in AI now, which is pretty freaking neat. That is really right? neat. Yeah, I'm <laughs> gonna have an existential breakdown right now but that's a whole other. <laughs> <laughs> but but like, so, so yeah, uh, sorry, going off on tangents here. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Um, so so those, are the, those are the three things behavior analysts can do. Listen and sit with the discomfort. Dive into um, functional oh, functional fun, contextual uh, contextualism. Yeah, functional contextualism, also known as contextual behavioral science. Uh, ACBS, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, also uh, contextualscience.org. Uh, fantastic. It started out as a special interest group for ABAI. It's now bigger than ABAI because it's more than behavior analysts. Um, and it's so neat the stuff that's coming out. Um, really, really cool stuff. So dump, jump, dive into that and ACT. Um, if you want a really good starting point for ACT and diving into it, um, first off, I think that before you can apply ACT to anybody else, you need to apply it to yourself. So I highly recommend um, either Dr. Russ Harris's um, uh, The Happiness Trap. Second edition just came out. It's fantastic. You can get it on audio, which I love. And Dr. Harris has got that lovely uh, um, Liverpool mixed with Australian accent. So it's really enjoyable to listen to him if you like listening to accents. Or you can get it on uh, ebook or, or print. Like it's, it's a solid, solid book. Um, all sorts of fun applications there. Um, there's another book that recently came out uh, by, I think it's Tamara Black uh, called uh, Act for Children something along those lines. 
Um, I'm working on my own book called Behavior Brain. I'm hoping to publish it within the next year or so. Um, Super uh, exciting. It's it's using ACT uh, for children and really any anybody um, with an emphasis towards workability and usable in the moment. Um, and part of the reason it's taking a while for me to get together is I'm also writing um, programming, uh, behavior analytic database programming. And what I want to do is I want to have a, a, a parent and family edition. And then I also want to have a, a behavior analysis edition or maybe another manual for behavior analysts. So that way you don't have to invent everything from scratch. You can focus on personalizing. Um, that, so that's, that's what I want to do with that. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, and then there's also Dr. Hayes' book, A Liberated Mind. Um, that's a really fantastic uh, book to, to dive into. And there's so many other really good resources out there. I, I, can, I cannot name all of them. Um, I will say that, that Mindful Behavior, uh, I work with them, full disclaimer, like that I, we collaborate and I do get a little financial gain off of, not a lot, but because this is passion more than anything, but um, Mindful Behavior is about trying to perpetuate that work um, and, and help educate and improve the field. So if you do want to pursue that, there are also other great sources out there. So, um, and then what was the last thing I said for behavior answer? Oh yes, uh, stop the stop think of that's mentalism and instead start figuring out how you can try to identify the function, uh, the behavior analytic principles that are going on in the environment. When you hear somebody else saying something or doing something that you start doing that, like, okay, try diving deeper. What's underneath that? What lies beneath? Um, and no, it's not, not just a horror movie that's from the nineties <laughs> <laughs> uh, or suspense movie. I'm not sure which uh, anyways, but uh, towards the autism community, uh, the three things that I think the autistic community can do to help change the field of behavior analysis and how can listeners help accomplish this change. Uh, no, I don't have a perfect memory. Kayla emailed those questions to me before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, full disclosure. Uh, okay. Um, This one's hard because I understand why there's a lot of anger in the autism community. I have that anger too. I, I really do. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you what you need to do, but I am gonna ask that you consider. Um, the first thing that I'm gonna ask you to consider is consider, consider try seeing behavior analysts not as the bogeyman, the bogeyman, whatever, uh, you know, an evil person, an abuser, please try seeing us. And I, and I'm a middle earther. I'm, a, I'm in, in, in between two worlds. So I do say us when I say behavior analysts, please try considering us as people who are trying. Um, I think especially us neurodivergent behavior analysts, because we're, I mean, like, like you said, middle earthers and I, I think a lot of neurodivergent behavior analysts are in this weird spot of like, are we traders? It's hard. It's hard. There are days when it's really hard. And you know what? I'll tell you right now. Um, I, I, I mentioned Tara Vance uh, and Tara and I have talked about this before, so it's great. It's all good. But like when Tara and I first interacted with each other, we, we were not friends. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I may have said some stupid stuff and I'm not going to speak for her on whether what, what she may or may not have said, but I will say 
that it, 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 it took a lot of work to be able to get to this point. But now I consider Tara, who is the CEO of Neuroclastic, I consider to be her to be a true friend. I'm friends with with Tara on Facebook. <laughs> Tara, Tara's awesome, right? Um, and and you know what? Tara coined a term, and and I love this term, neurokin. Um, and and neurokin is anyone who is truly family to the neurodiverse population, to neurodivergence. So you can be neurokin and be big air quotes here, neurotypical. I prefer neurological mean, because I think that there's multiple neurotypes from what the research is starting to show, uh, even within what is considered neurotypical. Um, but like you can be neurokin. We can, we, can, we can form a community because here's the thing that I'm beginning to see, especially from the, the, the reading that I've been doing and the, the research that I've been reading, especially from functional contextualism. Um, uh, here's a fun book to read. Uh, Dr. David Sloan Wilson's This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution. Uh, Dr. Wilson has co-authored some books with Dr. Hayes, who is the principal researcher behind uh, acceptance commitment therapy and relational frame theory. Not the only researcher, there's others out there. You know, he's Dr. Uh, Hayes et al., right? right. Um, but, but Dr. Wilson's book, This View of Life, has really changed the way I see things. Because one, he, he dispels a lot of myths about evolution, what it is and what it's not. Um, but, but here's the other cool thing about it is that that book has helped me to start seeing neurotypes and neurodiversity, which includes neurotypical and neurodivergent, right? Um, start seeing us as a part of a super organism of humanity. And it turns out that it, it appears that this could be true, not hypothesis, right? But it turns out that we all serve different functions. And I believe that the big air quotes here again, neurotypicals, uh, they serve a very important role of creating stability and structure. And neurodivergence serve a lot of really cool rules within role them, not role, rules, <laughs> roles within our societies. Um, and, and one of the roles that the autistic neurotype serves, I believe, is challenging assumptions. Because sometimes things are put into place because it was responding to an environmental thing. And then that's taken as gospel. It's the rule. We must follow this rule. Um, it's really funny because a lot of times uh, autistics are portrayed as being rigid. And which, people can be too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But but here's here's something really interesting for you. So I'm looking at I'm trying to look at uh, at I'm trying a part of behavior brain. The work that I'm doing with that is bringing in neurological research because it turns out neurology has proven uh, or verified a lot of what behavior analysis observed. Radical behaviorism is a science of observation, not a science of explanation. Um. There's, there's some explanation in, um, in uh, experimental analysis of behavior, uh, but it's, it, well, we're mostly observational. And so it's, that's where neurology has done a lot of verification and, and, and there's so, so there's some really cool things that can happen from this. But here's something interesting for you. When we're in freeze, fight, flight, fawn mode, right? 
we're very rigid. Doesn't matter what neurotype you are, you're rigid. When something goes wrong, it's it's bad, and you you try to you you either retreat or or do you know freeze, fight, flight, fawn. Um, so a lot of things that are related or consistent with what is frequently referred to as trauma is, is what's going on there. Um, and so that rigidity, I believe predominantly, not all of it, because there are certain things that certain neurotypes are more predisposed towards. Um, but a lot of it, I believe, is that the individual is not in a safe place. And granted, this is anecdotal because it's my observations, but I've been able to interact with a lot of really cool neurodivergent people. I got my neurokin, I got my tribe out there, they're fun. And it turns out that when we get into problem solving mode, when we're out of survival mode, when we're in the state of what I like to call flow, because if you imagine um, a, a stream flowing down a mountain, right? When, when, a, when a stream of water hits a rock, it doesn't stop and freeze up and, or it doesn't like get defensive, it flows around it. So that's why I like to use the term flow, because if you, if you think of it that way, when we're in a state of flow, regardless of what your neurotype is, you're problem solving, you're working it through, you're getting past the challenge or the problem or the thing that's in your way. And I'm seeing that happen a lot. And so going back a little bit to that classroom and, and, and that little flex there, I created a neurodivergent affirming flat classroom and the uh, neurotypicals wanted to be a part of it. When we have a neurodivergent affirming society, everyone thrives. I like it. It's so cool. It changes everything. It, turn, it turns us all into neurokin. We're working together and we're solving problems. So going back to the, I guess, the request to the autism community, please try seeing behavior analysts, not as the enemy, but as people who've definitely have been and are causing harm, who need to be taught, um, who can be allies. And, and if you're not an emotional place, if you're, if you're still having a hard time, I understand that. Don't, this is not me telling, this is me asking. Um, because I don't, I don't want it, it's, to, it's, it's hard work. It's hard work for me. There are days when I just want to stop. It's hard. Right. There, there are days when I just want to curl up and just not try anymore because I've been punished on all sides. And there are days when I have to reach out to my neurokin and, and say, hey, I'm having a hard time. Can you, can you be there for me? But I, I label what I'm feeling. I do what I need to make sure that I'm able to get what I need to, to be able to succeed. I identify my values and then I, 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 I take committed action towards it. That's, that's act right there in a nutshell. There's a little bit more to it than that, but like that, that's that's a that's that's a, a super simplification, and that's what I do. I'm doing consistently, and sometimes I'll I'll you know I'll go radio silent just to allow myself to recover a little bit. Well, and um, just to anybody listening, nobody has to do 
any of this. Nobody has to do any of this. Yeah. Even the behavior analyst, you don't, I mean, you don't have to change. We would prefer that, you know, behavior analysis get better, but like there, I, there are days you just can't, you just can't do anything. I mean, I, I, I mean, I will slightly disagree with you there that we as a field have to change because yes. that's our ethics code. Like we've taken on this responsibility. We've signed up for it. When somebody is born or the environment leads to them being neurodivergent, um, they didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up to be autistic ADHD squirrel, you know, <laughs> like so that that is just something that is. But I did sign up to become a behavior analyst. And so that's yeah. part of the reason why I'm so passionate about this work, because this is my willing responsibility. I have made the decision to be here. And I am here. And I have had people ask me, well, do you think the ABA is going to break off and have it do, do something different? And I'm like, if it does, it's not because of me. And um, the other people are like, well, have you thought about leaving ABA? And I'm like, no. Like, yeah, there's been days where I've just been like, ah, like <laughs> doing the con, screaming at the sky thing. Um, definitely. But no, I'm here. I'm fully invested. And, you know, I, I know this year I've definitely made a bit of a name for myself, which I'm really frustrated about, by the way, that I'm being becoming social media, more social media famous over the fact that I'm calling out ABAI and Judge Rotenberg Center for their bullshit. Um, that frustrates me. And just so you all know, I am not leading the charge on this. I'm a part of a team. It just so happens that for some reason I'm getting more attention than other people. But no, I'm not leading this. This is a us thing, not a me thing. Um, and, and it needs to happen. And it needs to happen. It, it, and and it, it needs a, like aversive application, uh, application of aversives needs to just end. It needs to be done because this is out. This is a blatant ethics code violation. It's not you know, uh, okay, so there are some circumstances where a person might, and, and there is actually, I listened to a podcast, I forget which one it was, but there was a case where somebody asked for contingent electric skin shock to be used on them. And that's like the one case in millions where the person's like, oh, I heard about this technology. I want this to be used to help me to shape my behavior. I'm like, okay, cool. If that person wants it, then go for it, right? But like, no, it's not to be used without that person's consent. Um, and no, a family member who is, or a, a, a executor who has been ruled by the court to be able to speak for that person does not count. Sorry, no, I'm not gonna play those stupid legal games. It is the person consenting to this or not. So anyways, going go away from that rant, I, I'm, I'm actually really frustrated and, and have had to do a lot of act and working through stuff in relation to the emotions I have because of me getting all this attention for that. Because you know what I want to be known for? I want to be known for silly memes and nerding out about behavior analysis and, and, and stupid puns. And instead, you have to waste time because of ABAI and JRC. Well, I, you know what? I, I'll, I'll I wouldn't call it a waste of time. You have to invest energy into something that shouldn't even happen. I, 
I, I have to invest energy because there's some people who are behaving very culty like, and there's a lot of cult like behavior going on because of their pride. Yeah. Because it, this isn't about science at this point. What I'm seeing is, you know what? Be, humans pretty consistently, we don't like to be corrected. It, there's, it's, it appears to be a component of what makes humans human. Well, and he, here was something that this is a, we're getting real personal for a moment because I have heard and trigger warning, this talks, I'm going to talk about like suicidal behaviors and ideation and all that. So the argument that a behavior can be so severe that it requires contingent shock, let, I've heard that argument a lot. Well, I was having a lot of suicidal ideation two months ago and checked myself into a psych ward because I was a danger to myself and others. And you know what they didn't do to me? They didn't shock me. Someone who is suicidal, who is a threat to their own life does not get contingent shock. That's the most severe behavior towards yourself that you can have is attempting to end your own life. And do we shock those people? No, we no. shouldn't. So someone who I have heard about like eye gouging behavior, like, yeah, that's an extreme behavior if you're gouging out your own eyes, but we cannot use that as a justification for contingent shock anymore because we don't do that to suicidal people. I'll tell you this right now, if you, there's a really solid book out there um, titled Pain and Shock in America. I have exactly one critique about this book one grump the one grump i have is they get they mix methodological behaviorism and radical behaviorism up they they say that bf skinner uh said that or the the authors uh that that he he said that thoughts feelings emotions are not behavior which anybody who's read about uh, about behaviorism like chapter two the universe beneath the skin come on like this is what makes radical behaviors radical and it's not because we're totally bodacious dude it's it's because methodological behaviorists argued that the only thing that counts as behavior is what you can observe and bf skinner said uh, -uh. thoughts feelings emotions memories those count as behavior now it's hard to account for them at least it was at that point in time and it turns out that even before bf center made that 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 postulate um that uh, there was evidence to support that thoughts, feelings, emotions were behavior because it turns out the EEG uh, brain waves were recorded in animals as early as the I, the the late uh, 1800s, like I think it was like the 1870s, and it, I believe it was 1923, 25 somewhere in there. Please don't quote me on that. Where brain waves in humans were recorded. So so there was there was records of that happening and then we get mris and functional mris and it's guess what we're we're seeing the behaviors happen so we verified it it is a behavior it can't be not counted as a behavior and that's where relational frame theory comes in and where understanding all this stuff comes in because now we're starting to see technology that helps us be able to teach skills towards management of the of, of those behaviors 
you know, it, it's still it's still not as precise as some components of behavior analysis because it does rely on some self-report. Um, but that's part of the challenge when it comes to verbal behavior is that verbal behavior is based off of external stimuli. And so like even the things that we're describing are based off of external stimuli. So when you say that you're experiencing pain when it comes to psychological pain, that's because the only thing we have to compare it to, the only relationship that we can have for it is the pain that we experience in real life as it relates, as it relates to envi our environment. So like even, even those descriptors are imprecise, but it's still super cool because we're starting to understand where the mind comes from and what's going on and, and, and uh, all these things that are happening. And, it, and, and if anything, the application of behavior analysis in a very human, humane, ethical way increases humane behavior. But it requires us to be asking those hard questions and pushing back against assumptions and norms and being critical of our own views and our thoughts in relation to these sorts of things. Because, and, and I know I've made some snarky comments about Lovas. I, I've got a lot of emotions bound up in that. I understand that Ivar Olovas was trying to be the best he could be with the information he had. So I will throw that out there and say that he was trying to be a good person. He was. And what he thought he was doing was good. I'm convinced of that. That doesn't change the fact that there's a quote out there by him where he said that basically when you have an autistic child, you don't actually have a person. You have all the things that make up a person. You have, you know, skin, bone, teeth, hair, clothes, you know, all that other stuff, but they're not actually people. They're not a direct quote, but it's that that's a pretty that's, dang That's a pretty good summary of it because I've heard yeah. that quote. And, and I've said it and, and read it out multiple times in multiple settings. That's a problem. That's huge. And you know what? Lovas his research has heavily influenced behavior analysis, heavily. The way that ABA is applied, whether you are Lavoisian in your approach or not, you've, you're, you're, it's been heavily shaped. And part of it is that now the, the autistic community now sees DTT as being a Lavoisian thing, even though discrete trial training is a principle, that's it. And I actually explained this to a friend, uh, another uh, advocate who is not a behavior analyst the other day. I had a phone conversation with him on this um, where I was like, okay, so let me help demystify DTT for you. You ever play a video game? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So when you start a level and you're shown how to do a certain combo on the video game, that's a discrete beginning and end. That's, that's trial one. And then you go up against uh, a, a mob in the game and you defeat it. Or if it maybe if it's not a combat game, if it's like something like Minecraft, you, you do the step, you do the thing and you do it over and over and over and over until you've mastered it. And then when you get to a boss level or, or you have to accomplish whatever to get to the next thing, you, you've succeeded in doing five or six different combinations or maybe two or three if it's a less complicated game. And in order to 
defeat that level, accomplish that thing, get that achievement, you have to then demonstrate those skills in combination in a very natural, contrived natural setting. Um, guess what? People willingly do DTT all day long for hours at a time. Yep. DTT is not the issue. In fact, you can, I've, I can, I have seen people do PFA, uh, SBT, the, the, the stuff I talked about with Dr. Hanley, I've seen people do that in ways that are, that are not neurodivergent affirming. I've seen it do it in ways that are, that are, whether they knew it or not was abusive because it's not the technology that's the issue. It's, are you seeing the person? Are you responding to that person's needs? That's what it really comes down to. Behavior and autistics, autism community, neurodivergent community, behavior analysis is not your enemy. The enemy is the assumption that another person is less than human. Yep. And I know that that probably is hard to hear and you're probably angry at me for saying it and maybe you're shouting or maybe you're just gonna pause it and be like, ah, Brian or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not gonna assume what it is that you're going to, what, what you're going through, but I will tell you this. Here's a really cool um, theory that it's not behavior analytic but behavior analysis should utilize um, game theory. I love it. It's, a, it's one of my favorite things. And you know what? The, here's the end message of game theory that I've figured out from all the research I've read on game theory and all the applications that I've seen. We need to start assuming the other person is human. We need to give other people the benefit of the doubt because if everybody followed the rule, an eye for an eye, the world would be blind. And if instead we follow the rule, let me propose a replacement for the golden rule because the golden rule is do to others as they would have done to, uh, or as, as you would have done to you, right? Let me, let me propose an upgrade. Let's go the platinum rule. Do to others as they would have done unto them. Let's assume the other person is human. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And here's the deal. This is really funny. As a self-professed troll, <laughs> when you approach somebody who is intentionally trolling and you give them the benefit of the doubt, that changes the dynamic. It allows for them to be able to demonstrate whether or not they're willing to meet you where you're at and to give you the benefit of the doubt or not. And you know, there's environmental factors that lead to whether someone will continue pushing it or not. But I've, I, I like, I like to do something now called a positive troll, <laughs> <laughs> or positive pranking, which is where I give the other person the benefit of the doubt. I, I, I match their energy. I start where they're at, and then I, and, and not everybody responds this way. Everybody's different. Everybody's, but like. I love matching where someone's at. I love doing something nice and not telling somebody I did it. I love tricking somebody into thinking that something's not going to happen. You know, it's not, not something vital. Please never do this with something vital. Like right. Food, like, like the, no, that's evil. That's a, please don't do that. But I, but I do like, you know, like subverting expectations in a positive light because you get what you give. 
And, and one of the things I like to subvert with expectations is I like to take things that we consider negative and I like to change the way we look at them. So here's something for you that I like to do. Are you selfish enough to want the world to be better? Are you selfish enough that when you walk down the street and you see a piece of garbage on the ground, that you will pick it up? Are you selfish enough to want your neighbor to have a good day? Or that person at the fast food who's looking at the joint that's looking really exhausted? I'll, I'll have people say, do you mind if I go to the bathroom? I say, yes, I do mind. I would love for you to go to the bathroom. Please do. Please. I, I don't want, want to clean to it up. <laughs> well, not even that. It's just, I don't want you to be uncomfortable. Like that, I know what it's like to, to like the number one thing that teachers suffer from with regards to medical. Oh my is, gosh. Is urinary bladder. tract infection, bladder, bladder stuff, because poor teachers have to hold it. And sometimes like even getting 10, 15 minutes to go, like my days, what I considered good days as a teacher is if I could go to the bathroom once during my roughly eight hour work day. That's right. Enough. So so are you selfish enough to want to see somebody else have a good day, even when you're having a hard time? Let's change the way we look at the world. Let's change the way we label or tact, as behavior analysts would say. Let's change the way we mand or make a request or demand. Let's change the way we engage in introverbals, both with ourselves and others, so that we can have those solid back and forth where we are creating a better world. And it's hard work. It takes a lot. Sometimes you don't want to get out of bed. Some days you're having a hard time. Sometimes you're just like, I need a, I need a, uh, a, a seven day weekend. Thanks. Uh, right. Right. And that's, that's fair. It's okay. And it's still, it's, it's just a, a, a momentary effort because as it turns out, if you're engaging in the world in a way where everyone's against you and it's an eye for an eye or everything's against you and it's survival mode, that's a really mean world. That's, that's, that's a carnival of horrors. I think that we can create a world that's better. Not perfect because perfection is overrated. It, I don't think it's possible. I don't, I don't, because first off, perfection is so subjective. Yep. Every to every person, their perfect is, is their perfect. Like I, I jokingly said once that um I was in heaven and someone else was in hell, and we were all we were watching the same movie, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's, it, it's, it's all based off the individual's preferences and perspectives, right? And, and so, um, but we can have better, we can improve things. Like, I am a different person than I was 10 years ago, and yet I'm the same person. If you knew then what you knew then, would you still do the same thing? Yeah, you would, right? But here's the cool thing. Humans, as far as we know, are the only animal or creature in the universe that's capable of time travel. 
because you can go back in your memory and you can reflect on something that's happened and know you can't change the outcomes, but you can change what you take from them. So I think about some really awful things that have happened to me in my past, which I'm not going to go into detail because I, uh, I will protect the identity of the guilty, <laughs> which may have included me at some point, definitely has included me at some point. But I've, I've been able to look back into the past and been able to label the emotions I have from those things and the experiences I have and the, and the hurt that I've felt. And I've been able to ask myself, am I the sum of my experiences or am I the sum of what I take from my experiences? Sum of what you take. And I would, I would argue that I can be selfish enough to make the world better. And so can you. So my invitation to everybody, behavior analyst, parent, autistic, um, neurodivergent community member, whatever your role is, is can you be selfish enough to want to make the world better? Can you be selfish enough to give the other person on the other side of the screen, on the other side of the aisle, on the other side of whatever it is, the benefit of the doubt? Because I believe that if we can do that, if we can change the rule to the platinum rule, that a lot of the problems, not all of them, but a lot of the problems will go away. And the problems will get less and less severe and less and less challenging. And there'll be more opportunities for collaboration, communication, improvement. And it all starts with a little bit of kindness. I'm trying to give to the people around me what I wanted as a kid and as a young adult. And even now, and yes, I make mistakes. Yes, I screw up. And I can acknowledge it and I can try to do better because there's no such thing as a bad day, just a bad moment. Your day doesn't have to be ruined just because the coffee order got wrong or because you spilled something or because something broke or something happened. You can take a deep breath label what you're feeling and identify the next steps to move forward maybe those next steps are screw it i'm done <laughs> right <laughs> and maybe those steps are instead of saying the mean thing that you wanted to say instead of focusing on the thing that you can't control you can focus on the thing you can control and you can do the next thing at the end of the day I'm, I'm not a behavior analyst. I'm not an autistic. I'm a person. Those are roles that I have. And some of them I took on and some of them I was born with. But at the end of the day, I'm a human. And I'm here looking at other humans or, or imagining you, I suppose. <laughs> and I'm hoping that you can see that we're people together. And yes, we have a lot of differences and yes, we have so many injustices and we have so much work to do, so much. And, and we can find those connections and we can have those kindnesses towards each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt. And we can stick our foot down and say, stop that shit. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and that's okay too. And with that, I wanna share one thing 
and then we can be done. I promise. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm rambling. No, this is this is an awesome episode. Okay, cool. Or at least right. in my opinion, listeners might not think so, but I think so. And that's what that's what counts for this podcast because it's mine. So why the bearded behaviorist? Why did I choose that name? Well, it's not because I have a beard, although that's definitely a part of it, right? Um, I, the bearded behaviorist could get some sort of skin disease and lose all his hair, facial hair and, and be as bald as a cue ball and still be the bearded behaviorist because here's what it is. Bearded behaviorist, the name is a pun as all great things in our society are. <laughs> but bearded behaviorist is in reference to an old saying because one of my special interests is history and I love collecting old sayings and and unique sayings and this is a saying that comes from um the the Torah or the um sorry not not Torah is it maybe it's a Talmud anyways uh or Old Testament depending on your your faith belief system um in reference to the story of King David you know David and Goliath um where uh King Saul is looking for somebody who can defeat the challenger of Goliath um and and nobody will step up everybody's scared of this guy who's huge uh and and a great warrior and somebody says well hey there's this guy david uh let me tell you about this kid he's a pretty cool kid please i'm definitely bastardizing this story but i like telling it in a very natural way so there you go but um this kid's so cool he's a shepherd and one day, one of his sheep was grabbed by a lion. By the way, the species of lions is now extinct. Um, oh. But, but the, th- this was uh, the northern, um, at North African lion. It was a desert lion. Um, but it, 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 the sheep was, uh, one of his sheep was grabbed by the lion. It was hauled off to the den. And based off of the, anthrop- uh, the anthropological records and the, 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 uh, uh, fossil records uh, it, it looks like that was pretty consistent what those lions would do is they take their prey and you know if it was if it died during the process then great but more often based off of what they see from the records frequently they were taken alive to the den and that's where they would they would eat their prey um, so the sheep was was grabbed by the lion and and david as the it says in the in the in the original translations pursued the lion to its den grabbed it by the beard and smote it in other words he he was more concerned about his sheep than himself he ran into the den he directly addressed the thing that was a problem head on by grabbing the lion by the beard or the mane and he took care of business and saved his sheep um so to beard the lion in its den means to address a problem or issue head on. So the bearded behaviorist is not me, but is anybody who is a behavior analyst. Yes, it is me as a persona, whatever. But it's any behavior analyst who will address an issue or a problem directly rather than beating about the bush. And as we all know, the bush is an area in Australia that's about the size of half a continent. That's a long way to be beating about. So please, can we stop doing that and just address the problems directly? <laughs> and if there's any one thing that I've learned, it's maybe it's my neurotype, maybe it's my environment, maybe it's a combination of the two, is that while it can certainly be punishing for me to direct, address problems head on, 
and direct. And definitely there are situations where it's hard. I have found that being direct, honest, and straightforward has served better outcomes for me and those around me than any amount of bush beating. Because the outback is huge. Let's get straight to it. So if you want to work with me and do something, cool, let's do it. If you want to try to improve how behavior analysis does things, all right, let's have conversations. But I am done with these backroom deals and stupid bullshit. Direct, honest, straightforward. What I say to you is what I'll say to anyone. And I will try to be diplomatic about it. And, and, I, and I'll try to be a little bit kind because I know it's sometimes hard but I will not be party to the part of the problem. And a part of the problem is what we're seeing at ABAI, is what we're seeing at JRC, it's these backroom deals behind closed doors, assuming that I can speak for somebody else. Here's who I speak for. I speak for Brian Franklin Middleton, me, myself and I, and anybody who wants me to speak for them as long as they want me to speak for them. But you know what? My response, if somebody does say, uh, you're saying the things I want that I've been saying, is like, okay, speak up, let's talk. Let me elevate your voice. Because I'm just one person. One, drink, one rain drop, drop doesn't change a thing. But have you seen what floodwaters can do? Have you seen the Zions National Park and the Grand Canyon and the amazingness, the water working together, all those billions and trillions and quintillions of raindrops did to change the world? Speak up. If you want to start a podcast, I'll help you out. I'll, I'll, I'll give you advice and support you in that. Can confirm. I can, can confirm. confirm. <laughs> When you reached out to me and asked me like what, what to do, I was like, oh, yes, I get to BST. <laughs> Behavior skills training for those who, don't, who are NGWA. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like if you want to do something cool, if you want to speak up, if you'd like me to elevate your voice to publish something you have to say, granted, I'm not going to publish something that I totally completely disagree with. So I, I reserve the right to say no. <laughs> and I also reserve the right to say, I got too much on my plate right now. <laughs> right. But, but I will say, I want to make it so that I'm one voice among many. Because yes, I am special in that I'm a unique individual person and there's never been a Brian Franklin Middleton before. There's never been the bearded behaviorist before, right? I, I am me, myself, and I. But in many respects, I'm not that unique. Because we're all human. Yeah. And that's pretty stinking cool to belong to such a great group of folks. We're also a little terrifying. Oh my God, that's the things that we can do. Ugh. Oh, which is one of the reasons why behavior, be, being behavior analytic or uh, being analytic in any way, not just behavior analytic is important because like the amazing things that we can do for good is, is fantastic, but the, the horrible things that we can do are also terrifying. So let's, 
let's be willing to question ourselves. Let's be willing to have that philosophical doubt and that humility, that being able to say that it's not, I am right. It is this idea that I have, this concept that I believe this might be right. But I'm also open to feedback and I'm also open to, to, to changing my approach. Because that's the coolest thing about people. It's so cool. We can time travel. And with that, I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I think that was uh, pretty fantastic. So what, what were the three things for the autistic community? If they so choose, if any listeners want, it was uh, see us as humans. Um, it, it was it was more like a couple things and see, seeing us as humans and 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 this was more of a challenge to everybody or an invitation I guess you could say of giving the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, we could throw out the three. That was yeah. We, we encompass quite a lot. That was pretty. Yeah, pretty there, awesome. there, there there's a lot there, uh, but I mean it takes a lot of work. Actually, you know, here's something cool that the uh, members of the autistic community could do. Here, here's something I'd like to invite you to check out. Check out acceptance and commitment therapy. If you think that ABA is irredeemable and unforgivable, um, check out what ACT is uh, and see what it can do because that could not have happened without behavior analysts. And if, if now you're like, no, I'm not going to check it out. I'm like, okay, well, you're being a little rigid there, buddy. <laughs> but then again, I, I say that to everybody who's, who, who's digs their feet in with those sorts of things, including myself, but like, no, seriously, it's super cool. There's some really neat stuff. And if you know anything about behavior analysis in some ways, it's not even the same animal. It is. That's what that, that CEU that I, that I did is all about is showing how it is. But at the same time, the language is different. The approach is different. Um, but it's all founded on those same core concepts. And it is some of the most amazing stuff that I've ever been able to see being produced by uh, radical behaviorists, AKA functional contextualists. And um, act, you know what, screw it. I'm, we're, we're on the topic, so I might as well give a brief history. So. First, the first scientific behaviorist, wave one would be Pavlov, the Pavlovian behavior, you know, the, the reflexive. Uh, does that name ring a bell? Ha ha ha. <laughs> reflexive or respondent? Re I think it's reflexive and respondent. They're both, okay. uh, it, it's an AKA. Okay. Respondent, reflexive, Pavlovian, classical conditioning. You might be right. I just like learning things. You know, if I, if I say it wrong, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. I, I, get, I get things wrong, whatever. Like, hopefully people get what I'm saying. So there's that. Uh, then, uh, so so wave two was the functional contextualist. That's people like Watson. Um, man, that guy was a piece of work. <laughs> Some of the stuff he did, I was just like, did you not ask yourself whether that was okay to do? No, you didn't? Okay, well, all right. So that's, that's a, that was the... Um, um, methodological behaviors and then bf skinner so that's wave two wave three bf skinner and he identified verbal operants with just think of operants as as learning through consequences so the initially there's a three-term contingencies antecedent behavior consequence stimulus response stimulus or another way of, of looking at it is the trigger 
the action and the outcome. Um, and then there's a census been turned into the form term for term contingency where we're looking at uh, establishing operations um, is one way of looking at it or uh, motivating operations is another way of looking at it. Um, yes, there's a difference there, but yeah, that's that's diving too deep. So whatever. Uh, but the you know this so motivation, uh, the trigger, the action, the outcome. Uh, those are those are the things that are going on. They're still learning through consequences. Um, and then B.S. Skinner proposed this idea about behaviorism, which Noam Chomsky tried tearing apart. And I really wish that B.S. Skinner had responded to him, but B.S. Skinner didn't have had a tendency of not responding to his critics because I think that would have changed the outcome of things. Um, but then there were some people who were like, oh, hey, this is kind of cool stuff. Let's ch let's dive into this a little bit further. And that's where relational frame theory comes from. And that's what established uh, the start of wave four of behaviorism, which is functional contextualism. And functional contextualist is not just behavior analysts. It's also evolutionary psychologists, evolutionary biologists. I believe there's some social psychologists. There's some uh, cognitive behaviorists in there because cognitive behaviorists are a part of the wave three. It's just a different divergent wave three of behaviorism. Yeah. Um, uh, there's, there's so much cool stuff. Um, I'm drawing connections with, uh, with, and I, and I think that uh, the research into memetics could be applied. Um, social psychology definitely should be a part of the process, positive psychology too. Um, the idea behind functional contextualism is the, is basically expanding on the radical behaviorist and other approaches. Cause we weren't the only ones who had this idea, but then all behavior, specific behaviors because they're definitely truly maladaptive like a seizure is definitely not adaptive it's not serving a function um but you know all certain classes of behavior do serve a function they are rational so in my language when i talk about behaviors that most people refer to as maladaptive or problem or behaviors instead i use target behavior or behavior of concern because it's not a problem for the individual because it serves a function. It's not maladaptive because maladaptive implies that it doesn't have a function and it does. So uh, I look at some of my old behavior plans and I, and I, and I cringe every time I see problem behavior or maladaptive. I'm like, Ooh, I'd use that. And then it's like, okay, I can be nice to myself. And it's like, I was learning. It's good. We can move on. Um, and, and so, yeah, though, that's, that's a very brief, uh, Cliff notes, Spark notes, whatever notes you want to use, Reader's Digest summary of, of behaviorism up to this point. We'll have to um, come back for a part two after wave four is completed. Just kidding, but we'll have a we'll have a we'll have a a, a part two to our uh, podcasting at some point. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. Just like we're, we need to have a part two for Colson contingencies. So yeah, there you go. Okay, I will shut up this time, I promise. Thank you so, so much for coming on. This has been amazing. This has been awesome. Uh, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm truly excited for the cool things that are happening. Um, so yeah, I, I've, it's been a real honor, Kayla. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I will link all of the things for all of the things in the show notes at alldayaba.org. There is 
the all day ABA podcast. That is the actual episodes you can listen to, but there's a other little tab that says podcast show notes. And this is season one, episode six. And thank you everybody for listening and have a great night or day, whatever, you know, whatever time of day you're listening to it, wherever you're at, or if you're in the dead of space and you're an alien, listen to this, have a great Zwarborg. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Bye guys. Bye.